Welcome back to another Lamentations of the Flame Princess campaign diary. If you haven't listened to the last one yet, I would highly suggest that you do, just to get a bit of background and an introduction to the characters. Um, before we start this one, I'll just do a quick recap of the events that happened in the last campaign diary. The campaign region, Alfinland, and its ruler, Lord Alfin, are at war with a powerful wizard who reigns in the east. He has taken control of Moor, a huge barbarian city. The heroes in this story are Nico, who deserted from the front lines of the war, Killen, an elf whose home was destroyed, Luther, a strange magic user who has a fascination with animals, mainly chickens, and lastly Gunlet, a woodland hobbit who was forced to leave his tribe after he killed the tribe's leader by accident. Woodland hobbits are known by the locals as fuzzies due to their thick fur. This team resides in Dolve, the city's capital, and after a botched attempt to rescue Lord Alfin's daughter, the party has spent the last few days recovering in a military infirmary. They were saved by some brave soldiers who were also attempting to find Lord Alfin's daughter. Lord Alfin's daughter is Xenia, aka the Flame Princess. She is still missing. Heroes awake, as I said, in an infirmary. Obviously a military one, it's crowded with beds which house wounded military personnel. Their mission to rescue Xenia, aka the Flame Princess, went awfully, with all of them seriously injured by the dragon which the goblins somehow controlled. Lord Alfin has just visited them personally and chided them for doing a terrible job. He has taken them off the case. They spend the next few days recovering and taking in their surroundings. Gunlet is too injured to talk and spends three days in and out of consciousness. Killin and Nico, however, spend time taking mental notes about the other residents in the infirmary. They notice that although many of them sport the regular wounds one would expect to suffer in a battle, there is one injured man that stands out. He is white as a sheet, his skin withering, and his hair is frozen stiff with pointed shards of ice at the tips. Additionally, around his nose there are frozen streams of snot and his mouth is cracked and blue. By all accounts this man looks dead but he breathes short quick breaths as he lies on the bed, eyes frozen shut. While Gunlit, Nico and Killen need to recover for at least a few days, Luther however is back to his usual self after only one day. The wounds he received from the dragon are considerably less severe than the others and as such after only a day in the care of a skilled alchemist, he dons his black robes, picks up his pet chicken, Drek, and decides to make his way to a place he calls his Dark Shrine. Leaving the infirmary, his old feet hitting the cobbles of Donvay City and taking in that sickly smell the city always seems to have. He walks northward, and along the way to his shrine, he sees some somewhat interesting developments. A relatively decent pub not far from the infirmary, the Howling Wench, is padlocked, and its owner stands on a wooden box outside. Many townsfolk pelt the proprietor with stones and yell angrily, yelling things like, where's the fucking wine, and accusing the pub's owner of hoarding it all to himself. 
You see, Domve is known for its wine. It has the best and worst in Alfinland. Alfinians are not big ale drinkers, but they live on wine, and as Luther bustles his way into the crowd, he hears talk of a shortage. Many pubs and inns are unable to open until the problem is rectified. Luther simply regards this information with a simple, I see, and moves on. Hurrying down the street, he comes across his second, likely related oddity. A newsboy is selling copies of the Domve Herald and cries out to the streets about a new tax. Refusing to buy a paper, Luther looms over the child and bades him to explain the headline. The child tells Luther that the new law reads, Thou shalt give half thy income to charity, or thou shalt have no income. Thank you, boy. Luther continues down the street, and ducking into an alley, he sees a fly-ridden bin full of rotten food and stinking fish bones. He tugs the big... He tugs the bin aside, dragging it over the cobbles, and beneath it is a grate leading to the sewers. Lifting the grate up, he descends into the stench hole and down into the darkness. Here, he comes to his dark shrine. In one of the slightly more dry areas of the foul sewers, there is an upturned crate. Atop it, a pile of hay and an intricate carving of a black chicken. Luther made this himself. He lights some candles on either side of the carving and prays to the dark chicken a god of his own invention, born from Luther's bizarre beliefs that animals hold some kind of magical power. As he lets out his prayer, asking the dark chicken, Oh lord, please give me guidance. I wish only for answers on my quest to find the magic in animals. What should I do next? There is, predictably, no answer. There is only the sound of sewage. But then, as Luther starts to arise, dejected, to leave the shrine, he hears a voice in his head. So then I said to, wait, I can hear someone else here. The voice is perplexed. Who's there? Tis I, Lord. Luther responds. I seek answers. Um, yes, this is your Lord. I have waited so long for your guidance. Shut up. Your Lord wishes to speak. The voice begins to snicker. I will give you guidance if you wish to be closer to me, your Lord. You must kill that bastard Alfin. Right. Kill Lord Alfin, you say? Yes, and make it quick. Bye! A strange conversation, but Luther notes the guidance mentally. He spends the rest of the day pondering this to himself and returns the following day to the infirmary where his companions appear to be getting out of bed and dressing. Luther has a spring in his step as he enters and wears a wide grin. Nico notices and remarks, You are smiling. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Well, yes, I'm having a fantastic day. Care to elaborate? Killen speaks up. No. Their conversation comes to an end, and as they move to leave the infirmary, a man walks in. He has thick, greasy black hair which falls to his shoulders, dark leather armour, and wears an eye patch. This man strokes his beard as he regards the heroes, his nose high in the air. This man is Commander Blackthorn. Everyone knows him, especially Nico. Blackthorn, of course, recognises Nico from his time in the army, before Nico deserted. Good morning, Killin, Gunlet. Luther and scumbag deserter! Blackthorn barks through gritted teeth. Good morning. Nico's voice trembles as he talks. Blackthorn proceeds to tell the heroes that Lord Alfin has had a change of heart and wishes to see them at his castle two hours after midday. He hands them a writ of summoning before leaving, his black cloak swooping behind him. The team are puzzled by this and discuss Alfin's possible motives, but they haven't eaten a good meal in days and as their stomachs rumble, they leave the infirmary in search of an inn. It is now that Luther tells them about the wine shortage and how many of the pubs have closed their doors for the time being. 
So they search around for a short while and end up in Lowtown, the poor sector of Dolnvay. The only pub they can find that hasn't closed its doors is the Frigid Cousin, an awfully named ramshackle dirt pub, but its doors appear to be open and raucous cheering can be heard from within. Killen is the first to enter and he's met by a serving woman who quickly blurts out, No officer! Sorry, uh, never mind. In the middle of the pub's main room, Killen can see a number of men and women screaming and cheering all crowded round something on the floor. Killen immediately knows what's going on. Grub fights. And now a legal blood sport where two poisonous forearm sized grubs fight to the death. Townsfolk make bets on which grub they think will emerge victorious. It seems the frigid cousin has found a way to make money in spite of the wine shortage. Nico, Luther and Gunlet all make bets on the next match, handing their money to a man in a tattered suit who stands on a table taking bets. Killen stands back to observe. He finds this type of thing to be beneath him. The next fight is brutal. The grubs tear at each other with their razor sharp teeth and, and jab at each other wildly with their poisonous barbed tails. After some five minutes of cheering, exclamations and screaming, a winner is declared. One grub lies in tatters on the pub floor and a serving woman sweeps the poor fucker up with a dustpan and brush. The winner, Throng, happens to be the one the team bet on and as such they win a fistful of silver pieces. Not long after, another match begins. The heroes make their bets once again. They put a few silver on a large, fat grub which is covered in warts creating a hard shell. The man taking the bets announces this creature's name to be Grubulus, a somewhat unimaginative name. The Grubulus is fighting a skinny whelp of a grub named Axe. The fight is over in seconds. Grubulus is impervious to the smaller one's weak attacks and with a swift stab through the head, Axe is destroyed. The team win yet more silver pieces. Luther, impressed with the fighting ability of the winning Grub, turns his attention to the bookie. He asks the man who owns Grubulus and states that he wishes to purchase him. The bookie, now swamped by an influx of people wanting to put money on the next flight, hurriedly points to a man sitting in the corner, sipping a pint of wine. The heroes approach the man and seeing he's wearing a thick leather doublet and has a pistol tucked into his pantaloons, the handle showing quite obviously. The gentleman has a horrific looking skin condition and only faint wisps of dark hair on his lumpy, calloused looking head. The man demands a high price for such a fine grub. And it's much more than Luther can afford, so the team turn to leave the pub. As they do so, Gunlet, obscured by the table, says, See ya! And the man leans over the table to catch a glimpse of him. The man mentions that he rarely sees fuzzies around these parts and offers a deal, a one-time match. He never really addresses Gunlet as he talks to the party and his offer is thus, the fuzzy versus 25 of my best grubs, excluding Grubulus of course, in this pub tomorrow night. No matter the outcome, you get Grubulus. Now, Gunlet isn't too familiar with human ways and so he doesn't realise he's being exploited. He agrees to the fight and does so under the pseudonym Yeichmeisen, literally meaning Grub Smasher in the Woodland Hobbit tongue. So the heroes have around two hours before they must see Lord Alfin and choose to take this time to train Gunlet for tomorrow's fight. They opt to carry out the training in the sewers by the Dark Shrine. Players, am I right? Anyway, the next few hours pass swiftly. Nico holds up two large dead rats and moves them around while Gunlet attempts to punch them. Gunlet also does a number of star jumps, pull-ups and lifting heavy sacks of equipment. And it becomes clear that Gunlet doesn't have a hope in hell of winning the fight. After each punch or pull-up he has to stop for a break and 
by the end of the training, he's a sweaty mess. We cut to Lord Alfin's castle. The team arrive mostly on time, except for Killen, who went off to find a public bath. You see, the lower halves of all of their trousers are now saturated with sewage, and they stink like a festering corpse. In any case, after showing their writ of summoning to the drawbridge men, they walk up a long walkway in the courtyard, which is flanked by hundreds of guards in heavy armour, some holding guns and some wielding swords. They stand to attention. After this, they ascend a huge staircase and into the gigantic wooden front door of Lord Alfin's castle, and eventually come to the throne room. The room is gargantuan. It looks like it's built for giants, and every step they take echoes as they head to the throne, which is so far away that Lord Alfin is but a speck. As they head up, they notice that Alfin is flanked by guards, and behind him stands Commander Blackthorn. Greetings, Jen. He is cut off. There is the sudden sound of footsteps echoing through the chamber as Nico, Gunlit, and Luther stand before Alfin. They turn around to see Killin running up to the throne, late and completely out of breath. <sighs> Greetings, gentlemen. I would like to apologise. I think I was a bit rash in my decisions. That's becoming somewhat of a catchphrase, isn't it, sir? Shut up, Blackthorn, you cretin. Alfin goes on to tell them that, in regards to finding his daughter, they are off that case. However, he explains, there have been a number of strange events occurring recently, monsters acting strangely, acting in bold and daring manners and growing in number. The royal priests believe this is due to an imbalance of chaos and law ever since that wizard Morin showed up and begun this wretched war. So, as I said, you are off the case, but I have a different team of people assigned to that now. But the way you went after her, attempting to save her with reckless abandon, no regard for your own safety, well, I don't know you, but I believe you have a wealth of bravery in your hearts. Or reckless stupidity, I really don't know, but I intend to find out. He goes on to tell them that a troop of his soldiers were recently on a reconnaissance mission and were searching for vantage points on which to build strategically placed trebuchets, and they came across something which either killed or severely disabled a lot of them, and this was either on or near Death Frost Mountain. Many of the men came back shriveled and frostbitten and were icy to the touch with ice forming in their hair and on their skin. Most of the soldiers didn't survive for longer than a few days after reaching this hideous state. Alfin believes that the enemy's leader, Morden, is somehow involved and wishes the PCs to investigate. He also mentions that Mount Nam, an active volcano, has been more active recently, bubbling and threatening to blow at any point. In addition to this, many of the villagers neighbouring Mount Nam speak of strange lobster-like humanoids emerging from in or around the volcano. These strange creatures have been attacking and killing townsfolk in these villages, tearing them to shreds. Alfin believes this is also the work of Morden, but hasn't seen the devastation firsthand, and is unsure how true it is. Lastly, the wine situation which you have no doubt noticed. He is cut off by Blackthorn whispering in his ear. Uh, never mind, he says after Blackthorn stops. I have someone else dealing with the wine. The heroes are escorted from the premises by Blackthorn, and the whole way they exchange insults as Blackthorn starts up a conversation with, I'm going to restore Donvay's vineyards and be a hero, and you lot will still be nothing, chuckling to himself and grinning. The heroes are reluctant to let Blackthorn win, and leaving Blackthorn and the castle behind, they turn north and head for the vineyards. Bribing the guards, they enter to see that the vineyards are blackened, shriveling, and also Gunlit notices that the soil is freezing cold to the touch. 
They see a path winding through the blackened grapevines, and note that the only reason this path exists is because they appear to be shattered, leaving piles of cold black ash on the floor. Reaching the end of this winding path, they find a withered corpse-like man with the same frozen hair and blue lips as the man from the infirmary. He has been pierced several times, and is bolted to the fence with spears. Killen takes a good look at his attire, and sees that this man was a soldier of the Alfinland army. His uniform has a Dolmve crest on it. Luther pokes the deceased with the butt of his staff, and he shatters, turning to a pile of snow on the vineyard ground, leaving behind only a set of armour pierced by spears. Believing Deathfrost Mountain to be the source of this bizarre scourge, and the reason for the shortage of wine, they head out of the city, stopping by a shop on the way to buy a set of cold weather clothing, and they head northeast, across the plains outside Donve, and head for Deathfrost Mountain. After a long day's travel, the moon now hanging over them in the sky, they begin to come close to Deathfrost Mountain, but are startled by a strange sight. Jammed into the snowy, mucky soil at the base of the mountain is a tent, made of haphazardly stitched animal hides. Around this, many other hides hang out in a long line, dripping blood into the ground beneath it. And in front of the tent is a mass of gravestones, perhaps 200 or so, each representing the symbol of the three snakes, Elfinland's gods. They are carved poorly and look as if they were done in a hurry. Gunlet approaches the tent and yells at what appears to be a front entrance, bidding whoever is inside to wake up. Emerging from the tent is a mostly toothless man with a balding head. He introduces himself as Ezekiel. He talks with great sadness in his voice and tells them that he made these graves. He says that evil lived on the mountain long ago. It was destroyed, but not before it claimed thousands of innocents. He remembers their faces, and he says some of them were children. And so, he honours them by carving their names into stones. He used to make the graves the heroes see, but stopped because there were just too many. Ezekiel says he's the only one left, and the only one that remembers them. Luther tells Ezekiel of the party's intention to climb the mountain and see what's going on, and Ezekiel, with a horrified look, tells them that whatever is going on up there, finding out is not worth their souls, and begs them to turn back. After much discussion, Killen manages to coerce him into guiding them up. Ezekiel is reticent to do so, but was threatened with violence by Killen. The trek up the mountain is a frozen hell. Gunlit's face is completely numb, and he feels as if he's going to drop dead, his very bones freezing, even through his winter clothing. Luther is similarly suffering, and his footsteps are more and more sluggish and dragging the higher up they get. Nonetheless, with Nico, Ezekiel, and Killen heading the trek, they make it to the top, where they find another mass graveyard. But this one is double the size, and as the snow buffets them, they look around to see a cabin, and a gigantic black tree flanking the graveyard. The tree is withered, black, and one branch has a rope tied around it, hanging down, now broken. Gunlet can tell the tree is dead, but is hopeful of a light snack to recover his almighty fatigue. He stabs the tree with his dagger, hoping to sup on the sweet sap inside, and instead, the tree bleeds. Dark red blood which sluggishly blobs down the side of the black bark. They all immediately run for the cabin, scared by what they've just seen. 
Enjoying the respite from the cold, they all see that the cabin is very strange on the inside. The roof seems to sag under the weight of the snow, and the walls are scrawled with some ancient language. As a student of languages, Nico spends the next 30 minutes attempting to translate the text. He discovered that it's not a language he's seen before, but it does bear some similarities to ancient versions of the common tongue, and it simply reads, Look upon the faces of immensity. Look upon the breaker of all things. This phrase is repeated over and over, as well as another, reading, This is the fifth oracle. This is the greater servitude. Meanwhile, Gunlet walks through to a sitting room where he sees a painting, a perfectly rendered work of art, with exquisite detail, depicting Gunlet, exactly as he stood when he first regarded the fresco, except he's standing before an altar, with a dark grey skeleton looming behind him, next to an open door leading to a dark tunnel. Gunlet calls the whole team in to see the oddity that he has just seen, but Nico is busy examining a large torso-sized book he found in the main room. Just as Nico looks up to ponder the book's title, That Which Was Given, he notices something. The carpet is slightly askew and the pattern of the floorboards changes direction beneath it, isolated to one small square, and he lifts the carpet and finds what he suspected, a trap door leading down into a dark, dark tunnel. That's it for session two. I'm gonna label this one, call this one I should say, the best laid plans of fuzzies and men. A couple of very, very minor details that I left out of the um, retelling here was um, before they left Donve and headed to Death Frost Mountain, they did go back to the frigid cousin and speak to that um, guy with the skin disease and they rebooked the match for a couple of days time because they didn't think they'd be back from Death Frost Mountain quick enough. Um, the second very minor detail is, although Ezekiel did go with them um, because of being coerced by Killen, he essentially, obviously really doesn't want to be there, and as a result did make an attempt to escape when they weren't looking. If you like this, then please give us a, uh, give us a share on whatever social media platform you feel like doing. And uh, second of all, we've got an email address if you want to contact us. That's 3trpgpod at gmail.com. And, uh, of course, if you uh, fancy donating to us, um, and then and get in, then go over to our Patreon page, because uh, we do work hard on these things and would appreciate a uh, small donation if you can manage it. So thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time.